Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where each week we explore the world of hospitality by chatting with its most colorful characters. Tim, I got to tell you, I'm riding quite high right now. You are? Yep. I am too. But do you think it's for the same reason? Well, I have not taken anything today. Have you? <sighs> Just caffeine. I know you haven't. <laughs> not a caffeine guy. No, yeah. The, this interview is, is a great one. It, yeah, it was very good. And we recorded it yesterday. We usually do the intro outro on the same day. But uh, we didn't have time, so we're doing it now. Why didn't we have time again? Did you have a tea time you had to get to, Danny? Or some <laughs> I mean, who other can say? Bullshit? <laughs> I, yeah, can say I can say with certainty. <laughs> uh, no, this was a guest that we've wanted to have on for a long time, since, since the start of the pod. Um, but we strategically timed it for the release of a highly anticipated book that he's putting out. We'll yes, get to that later. A cookbook. A cookbook. Yeah. Our guest is Jason Hamill, as you know, um, by reading the title of this episode. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he's pretty special to us. Um, he's special to the neighborhood. He put Logan Square on the map, paved the way for businesses like Scofflaw and many others. A very, very early adopter in the Logan Square neighborhood and very early to the farm-to-table cuisine. Yeah, and he uh, also fed all the people at my wedding. That's right. I was there. I can <laughs> confirm that the food was on point. Yeah. And the cocktails were on point. Scofflaw did the cocktails for Danny's wedding, not surprisingly. But it was like a full menu. Yeah, it was a full menu. Um, Jason's food was excellent. Going to the tastings with Ellie was uh, was a highlight of the wedding preparation. And, I'd say uh, it's probably responsible for the success of your marriage and maybe even your two kids. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm overstating that. Yeah, we owe it all to Jason, I think. Yeah, it was a fun wedding. Is at uh, Garfield Park Conservatory. That's right. Great venue. Um so yeah, I mean, I think I think you're about to hear a really interesting story um, spoken very well. Yeah, you get the you get the origin story, which I had, I did not know. We also get some background on Jason as a person. Um, he's a literary guy, and I think it's cool to see the marriage of that with the cooking in the cookbook. And I'm excited for that to come out. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Jason Hamill. Jason, welcome to the studio. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming on the pod. And uh, we're looking forward to the, the release of your new cookbook. It comes out October 4th. So. We've wow. wanted you on the pod for a long, since the beginning, yeah. I think. Oh, and I, I think so that. now we're, I think it's good timing. Yeah. We do want to yeah. talk about the book. But before we get there, let's go way back. Okay. <laughs> How far back do you want to go? I'm only 25, so yeah. let's go back. Yeah. <laughs> only go back max 25 years. Well, yeah, let's go back to Connecticut. So you grew up in the grew, East Coast. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. That's where Yale is, correct? That is where Yale is. Did, did not go there, but that is where Yale right, is. Right, right. You're but a Brown you man. Go, I did yeah. go to Brown. Yeah. yeah, I did. Not too far off. No, I, I lived in Providence for a few years. Um, if you want the short form story, uh, I was studying uh, creative writing. And uh, Brown's writing program, it was, you know, on retrospect, it might have been, it was just a crazy program, kind of hard to get into, et cetera, as an undergrad, even worse as a graduate. So they only took one graduate student a year at Brown uh, from, the, from the undergraduate program, and it, it wasn't me. So I had to figure out where I wanted to go to graduate school, and the... Uh, I had a professor whose name went by one name, like Madonna. Uh, <laughs> her name was Eurydice. Wow. Uh, she was Greek. 
brilliant woman. And uh, she suggested I study with David Foster Wallace and Normal. And uh, that's what I did. But between that, I lived in Italy for, uh, for a good chunk of time. I lived in Bologna and uh, played guitar in a cover band. Um, Who were you covering? I mean, it was, we had to play for three hours. So any <laughs> oh and all. God, yeah. Any and all. And that was pre-internet, so we really didn't have any access to, <laughs> you know, lyrics or... Tabs. Uh, tabs <laughs> or anything. So it was all out of memory. Um, and uh, I did that for a while. And, uh, you know, I slept on some couches in Italy, et cetera. I did some traveling. And then I came back and I lived in normal. Was music always a big part of your life it was in high school you know i wasn't great at it but uh i played in bands throughout high school and into college and then how about food i mean it seemed like from what i've understood you went to italy to like get in touch with family roots i, I mean i went and i've been really fascinated by family roots and sort of the disillusion of that you know just like the the erosion of them in my family um not for many fault of my family just fault of time you know yeah. um and I, what I realized when I was writing, you know, despite the writing program being very avant-garde and like everyone was like, you know, battling to be the weirdest of the weird in that uh, <laughs> in undergrad, um, and it's funny thinking back on it. But um, I realized, you know, I was instructed to write what you know, which is what everybody says about you know being a writer. And what I knew was, you know, being in it, like trying to find the weirdness in your own family. Yeah. Um, so some of the evocative things that I brought to my writing when I was in college were, um, you know, had to do with my grandparents. Um, and I'm, I wrote this one story about pasta and my grandmother, and uh, it wasn't as, like, nostalgic and, um, you know, tepid as it sounds. It was kind of a weird story. And the uh, Eurydice was like, yeah, that's it. That's your obsession. And I'm like, so, so it is. It's like Italian, being Italian. And um, what that means when no one thinks you're Italian or you don't, you know, you didn't grow up in the Bronx or you don't have an Italian name or whatever. Yeah. And I just sort of started digging into that and then ended up actually moving there and learning the language. That's cool. Do you still speak Italian? Very, not well. I'm, I'm trying to keep baseline understanding and yeah. every, every morning I'll like watch, you know, like I'm at the gym, I'll watch Italian TV or listen to podcasts in Italian. What struck you about the culinary world in Italy? Well, I didn't, I wasn't a member of the culinary world in any way. I had no money. Uh, but I guess I when you were to, there. Like... When I was there, I, one, one chance thing was for one month, I got to sleep in this tiny little, it was actually the same size as this room. Yeah. I, I know we're so on roughly audio here. So roughly 100 but... feet by 100 yeah. feet. <laughs> <laughs> a very small room. Yeah. I mean, you effectively had just a small aisle to walk around a bed. Um, the, the kitchen was inside of a closet but it was located on the piazza where the central market of Florence, that I was in Florence for that month, is located. So I was literally on the doorstep of this like magnificent, like world-class uh, farmer, indoor farmer's market. Mm. Uh, and I started exploring in there quite a bit and finding my way through those, um, those ingredients. And also just like picking up on what like m being at a market meant in that country. I mean, that country is just, I mean, obviously it's, full of pristine, beautiful objects. Yeah. Um, and uh, that gave me, it, I think it sort of like foreshadowed a career. It, I didn't, wasn't aware of it at all. Yeah, like I hadn't um, started cooking at the time at all. Uh, no, I mean, I worked in the, I worked at a Japanese restaurant in high school as a busser. I worked in the dish pit at Brown as a, you know, a dishwasher, which was, I mean, in a college 
you know, uh, <laughs> food service operation was crazy. Um, and, and so I had a little bit of restaurant-y experience somewhat. Uh, my grandparents owned a diner when I was a little kid, but I, I don't, I barely remember it. And it wasn't until graduate school when I like literally was like, I don't, I don't have enough money to make this work that I like turned to this guy next to me, this guy, Frank, we were at the bar. I'm just like, how are you making this work? What do you do for money? And he's like, well, I'm a cook. You can come tonight. And I ended up at uh, this restaurant in Normal that, um, it, I mean, I, I made the, I've made this joke before, but it's basically like an off-brand California pizza kitchen. <laughs> um, not great. I mean, not a great yeah. restaurant. I did worked there, and then the managers all left and went to open up a TGI Fridays across the street, and I worked <laughs> at TGI Fridays. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Were they mm-hmm. kind of informative in any way? Like the I think TGI Fridays was incredibly informative for me. Like just I, how the structure of it and the the, the organization, um, the discipline of of the systems, um, the checks and balances with the managers, and then just all the shitty politics on the line. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> the people who were, it's you a know, good intro. Uh, yeah, just are ready to establish hierarchy yeah. at all costs. How many recipes did you steal for Lula? Oh, yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> just a carbon copy. Yeah, yeah. They, they've been serving the pasta yaya downstate at TGI Fridays on the secret menu for years you wouldn't know but uh, so that's a huge departure from going to the markets in florence at the time in america farm to table didn't exist I no mean, you're very I much mean, a pioneer of that style it might not it might have existed somewhere in the united yeah. states yeah, like but a hundred percent did not uh, exist in normal illinois <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the, t- the 90s yeah well, was real- the pulled in normal was david foster wallace david foster wallace then like did he have the, the big so name the story no i mean he had a name for sure he yeah had, he had or... um uh, no, he only had Broom of the System and Girl oh. of Curious Hair out. So he was a young, up-and-coming writer wow. with a massive new book about to hit the yeah, marketplace. Mm-hmm. So I was there um, the year Infinite Just came out. Wow. Whoa. Um, and uh, witnessed, you know, the, he, the rise of David. How did he seem throughout that process? I mean, I, I could talk a long, a lot about David and <laughs> others have, um, you know, he's a real complex and, and difficult person to know. And, uh, Tim got me a book about. of his tennis writing for a birthday present a long time That's ago. That's brilliant stuff. Sure did. Theory, right? Have you read it? Of course. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah great. string theory. Yeah, string yeah. theory is great. It's brilliant. We're big right? tennis people. So. Oh, you are? Yeah. You must be excited right now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've my, been texting my wife all has night. gotten obsessed with tennis in the yeah. last couple of years, playing tennis. Oh, that's awesome. I grew up, um, speaking of tennis, like my my dad was a real charismatic figure. Uh, very, I mean, this is the very Italian side of uh of my family. And, uh, you know, he was a gambler and, like, was that, you know, did, you know, the things that you would expect a you know a one episode character of the Sopranos to do, um, <laughs> but he was a major oh, wow. tennis guy. And my funny story is that uh, I used to go to the U.S. Open every year. I mean, the U.S. Open's on right now yeah. as we're recording. Yeah. We used to go every year, and he'd pay off the guy at the gate to let us in for you know for whatever it was, like forty bucks. Or, yeah. And but we wouldn't have seats, and so we'd go in the grandstand and just wait for someone to get up to use the bathroom for the game, and run down to their seats and sit there. And then when the people came back, we'd move to somebody else's seat <laughs> That's the whole day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad sold programs at the U.S. Open, so oh, we really? went as kids we might have, as well. Yeah, we might have come across the pass. <laughs> yeah, we could have. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah. Anyway, so I mean, I, I don't know if we were telling the story of getting here, um, but I, I I moved here to Chicago after being at uh, in normal for a year and a half. And did you move from a for a job, or was it just to you wanted to get to the I, Chicago? I, I was natural progression yeah, from normal. Um, normal wasn't wasn't for me, um, and Chicago was. Yeah. Um, I had I mean the story, which uh, you know again is one that hopefully people haven't heard to me talk about too often, but I, I moved up to Chicago um, in 95, and I had been told about, like, Logan Square as a, you know, a place to live um, for, uh, you know, a young artist, and so I got an apartment sight unseen, you know, was, again, pre-internet, and, like, I, you know, moved in with my girlfriend, and both of us had heard about this coffee shop down the street. I was a coffee shop guy I used to write in coffee shops reading coffee shops just like part of my um you know 90s community both in Providence and then even in normal and in Italy I would just like constantly be hanging out at coffee shops cafes um so on our first day we went to Logan Beach Cafe which is at 2537 North Kedzie um it uh we walked in we sat down in the window and there was a chalkboard menu um, and it said Leah's Amazing Soup. And mm-hmm. I turned to my girlfriend, whose name was Leah, L-E-A, and the soup was L-E-A. And I said, hey, someone else spells her name like you. And in that moment, I was talking to you know, my uh, girlfriend, who would then become my ex-girlfriend, about my future wife inside <laughs> yeah, the space. so weird. <laughs> inside the space, I would become Lula. Wow. So that was, wow. That was day one. <laughs> that was day one of living yeah. in Logan. Yeah. Wow, what an origin story! Yeah, yeah that's a, a good cool story. story. The table is still there; it's right in the window. It's so table cool. fifty-one. So, what was the first gig in Chicago? Did you stick with food? I, I actually worked uh, at Uncommon Ground as oh, a yeah. cook for a little while, um, and then Lee and I um, we started a soup company. So uh, we used to make soup and then drive it around and try to sell it to cafes that didn't have kitchens. You know, pre-Starbucks era, there were a lot of small cafes, especially near L Stops, that were like doing the commuter traffic thing, and they would have the soup pot on the on the back counter, and we would try to sell homemade soups to them. And we we were pretty successful for a little while, and we had a deal with the Logan Beach Cafe where we would make soup for them in exchange for using their kitchen, and that's kind of how we started. And how did you and Leah end up together? Uh, we opened a restaurant, and then, you know, other relationships ended. And oh, uh, you worked oh, so together you were just when you opened. Yeah, oh, yeah, for years. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, not years, but it was two years. Wow. Yeah. At what point did you think, like, oh, you know what? I think that would thought was you sort of underlying all of okay. the whole process, the, yeah, the whole time, yeah, the whole time. from the beginning. And like, I have. You know, my grandparents once came out to sort of uh, visit with us. And, you know, my grandmother was like, oh, yeah, that's that's the couple that should be together. You know, my grandmother had that sort of wisdom. You know, wisdom yeah, wisdom. It's like Tim's world. mom. Yeah, my mom was our matchmaker. That was she my meet cute with Shannon. Yeah, yeah, she introduced us. Yeah, so uh, what were some of these uh, soups? Oh, man. Do you remember them? funny. We were talking yeah, like yeah. mulligatawny. I mean, they were like black Jambalaya. bean vegetable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like 90s soups. Yeah. Coconut curry soups. I um, struggle with soups in the city. I wish there was. There was a... Well, there's Carl's. I mean, if you go to... I market, still haven't tried so Jupe there. soups yet. Yeah, we got to get Jupe soups. Yeah. Jupe's. I haven't heard of Jupe's. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Brian Jupiter's got a soup company. He has company. a soup yeah. company? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, I definitely got to check that yeah. out. Yeah, we should. Um, yeah. Do you make any of those? I mean, did some um, of those there's recipes a soup carry on over? our menu, the sweet and sour cabbage soup that has Indonesian sweet soy sauce in it, and that is a soup that 
I actually ordered the because just to be clear, Leo was cooking at Logan Beach Cafe yeah. and she was making soups and that's kind of how I met her. I'm like, oh, I love your soup. Tell me about it. Um, and she made this um, sweet and sour cabbage soup that's still on the menu today mm. and in the cookbook. So how does Lula come to be? So I Logan Beach in the late 90s was everything to me. I was there daily, all my friends, I mean, I was in my 20s, all my friends that, you know, many of whom I still have today were either worked there or hanging out there. There was music regularly at Logan Beach. I, you know, I would find out about, you know, um, the movie, you know, like screenings at private lofts that people would be holding there. It was just like a, it was an artistic community. Uh, It meant a lot to me. And at a certain point, the original owner uh, sold it to an, another uh, couple of guys, and they just couldn't make it work. They didn't, for whatever reason, and it was clear that it was struggling. And um, what ended up happening was the original owner was like had moved away. She was caring for uh, ailing parents, and she was kind of like, "Well, it, I can't do it anymore. These guys are struggling with it. If you guys want to take it over, I'll partner with you, and let's just like start it again." So out of like in an incredible like you know act of generosity and kindness she sort of took back her business and partnered with us and then uh after a few years we not even a few years really in the beginning we bought her out um so we were able to open a restaurant with uh we had nothing like we had a couple of credit cards we maxed them out we um we got our tables and chairs from a bowling alley that was going out of business we sanded the floors and i painted the ceiling you know and all that kind of stuff in the beginning. And um, we were just able to open up without any kind of budget, which just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. You know, uh, it was it was a different time. Um, so, you know, no website, actually no computers at all, you know, no POS, no, uh, you know, no hood. Oh, man. <laughs> um, no dishwasher. <laughs> no, I just, you know, we had a home refrigerator. You had to walk through the kitchen to get to the bathroom. Uh, it was a different, uh, different, you know, kind of space and... 1999. Yeah. And, and did the artist community stick around? Was yeah, that... so that was another blessing yeah. of, um, of this gift of, uh, her name is Virginia Louie, that she, um, I mean, we in, what we have now is inherited. It's not just, you know, something that we created. Logan Beach was a, um, an amazing community space, and uh, there were a lot of, I mean, there, there are a few people who would go there then that still come, but um, it's more about just the deeper roots of that business and how it uh, established itself in the space um, that we inherited and then built upon. This episode is brought to you by Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, a tasty, versatile spirit. Created in Chicago in 2012, the product was born out of a need for a bespoke iteration of the Old Tom style, which is the slightly sweeter predecessor to London Dry. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin carries classic notes of orange peel, juniper, and coriander while balancing on a subtle floral edge thanks to the addition of osmanthus blossoms. Its elevated proof is suitable in cocktails or unadorned. Scofflaw Old Tom Gin, complete your bar. How was the reception from the beginning? I I think it was great. I don't even remember. I mean, it's like, I I, I don't, no one's paying attention. We didn't, no, we didn't get reviewed. There was Uh, no, like, you know, it took a long time before we got like a mention in the reader. And then the reader was talking about, you know, the art shows and the music shows that we were doing. It wasn't like, you know, uh, it wasn't a, a judgment 
there yeah. wasn't the same sense of like immediate judgment and uh yeah you could organically grow yes, and come we into were, your we own were, and thank god because we yeah, had no, no pressure idea we were doing yeah what was the vision for that first menu um, we were staying 90s cafe, you know, we had a uh, baked portobello mushroom stuff with pesto and blue cheese stuff like that mm -hmm. We had vegetarian sushi mm -hmm. um, But there were a couple things that are still on the menu. We had the breakfast burrito. That's there now Yeah, I mean it, the sushi was there until not it was too for, long I mean, ago. I mean, it's been well, you're dating yourself <laughs> maybe, now. Yeah, maybe I'm old. When did that leave the menu? <laughs> it's been I mean, like I remember a decade. Seeing it. Okay, so since like 2012-ish? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I just remember seeing it on the menu. Yeah. I don't think I ever had it. Yeah, but it was I, there for a while. I've been coming there for so long. Yeah. Um, yeah so what, what year did you originally open? Because you moved to Chicago in 95, right? 99. 99, okay. Yeah. And then in 2003, you were on This American Life. We were on This American Life. One of my favorite episodes. It's where, pretty funny. Yeah. Do you want to tell the premise of that? I mean, Ira was a, a regular customer. Um, and actually, um, a plug is a, I'm doing a book signing with Ira in New York on October 19th. Oh, so cool. For cool. People to come out to that. Um, and he just had the idea of, like, wiring up the servers. And, like, I, you know, obviously it's a risk I, I think at the time our service wasn't at the, I mean, it's nowhere near the place where it is now. And uh, I hope that we didn't develop a relationship for surly servers, um, which, you know, we kind of had in the beginning. But it was just, you know, it was a different era. I mean, my servers were, it was kind of a party, you know, we were getting together every night and making food and we'd go, people go across the street and get a bottle of wine. I mean, employees bring it back and we'd all, you know, share a bottle of wine and like cook the five orders of something that came in while some kind of discordant jazz was playing you know, on, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. on the stage, you know? Yeah. But the pre so the premise for the listener, the premise of the uh, segment was uh, the episode's called The Allure of the Mean Friend. Right, right. And it was a social experiment of sorts where they were trying to see how the treatment of uh, customers affected the tip. And they essentially found out, there is a spoiler here, so if you haven't listened to it, it is a good listen. Turn this off now. But they do find that the... <laughs> For this like, next 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, the more uh, disengaged, I guess, the server is, the better the tip. That, that was, yeah. I don't know if the data really would stand up to scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> it makes for a good listen, though. It does make for a good listen. I can tell you after 24 years that that is not the case. <laughs> uh, and that niceness does pay. Yeah. Yeah, eventually we have we've gone back to niceness. Yes, there was like a there was an era though where yeah, there was a mean era. Yeah, there was Ed kind of a mean era. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Soup Nazi, which you already referenced. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I think some places still feel like they can get away with it, but but there's less tolerance, I think. I mean, that's not that's absolutely not the way we think about the yeah, service yeah. today. No, I know. Yeah, yeah not yeah. you guys, but. You know, there's some other people. You're, you're just talking about Scofflaw, right? <laughs> <laughs> just ourselves, yeah. You could have a mean night in Scofflaw. <laughs> take the data from that over time. Yeah, we're just going to listen Wednesdays. to that episode and be yeah. inspired. <laughs> so how did the menu, um, I guess, were you always doing local sourcing and working directly with farmers, or did that come after that a certain came after. time? I mean, in the beginning, I didn't understand that. I didn't really know how to cook professional or even at all. Um, and so the, the first year was buy a bunch of cookbooks, you know, I want to, you know, roast a leg of lamb. So I'd go, we went to like the Greek, Leo's Greek, we'd go to like the Greek grocery and like talk to that guy and get a whole leg of lamb from the grocery store. And then I'd bring back and I open the book, 
like Jacques Pepin's La Technique and like look at the book and like cut the lamb and figure it out and then sell it. And we you have like three orders <laughs> and yeah. that would be plenty for a Friday night. Um, and I, we existed like that for a while. And then we got a hold of, someone gave me Charlie Trotter's Vegetables book, um, which is a beautiful book and uh, walks through um, dishes month by month. And that was one of the first times I was ever like, opened up to the idea of like um, season, how seasonality would work in a, in a Midwestern you know, space. So I immediately got obsessed with trotters and uh, researched like where they were buying vegetables. And we actually started going to places and buying those vegetables. So the first thing I did was go to Cornell and Sons Produce and the old produce depot and on the you know, um, the south, it's not the south side, it's more by uh, Roosevelt on um, Blue Island, um, and we would we knocked on the door and we we're like, hey, we read we saw you in the Charlie Trotter books. Can you let us in? And they let us go in this like you know massive you know ten thousand square foot refrigerator and just dig in there and take you know baby scarlet turnips or white asparagus or you know um, I don't know purple potatoes and that's a purple potato is a great like late nineties you know ingredient <laughs> you know and uh, and bring them back to the restaurant and that was the first time I saw like sort of these exotic vegetables. Um, and then uh, I befriended the, this chef used to come in, um, Kelly Courtney. I don't know if you remember. She had Mod, where Violet Hour is now. Oh, oh yeah. Hmm. You got to go a couple a couple of iterations <laughs> yeah. back okay. uh, to get Before there. Before my time. Um, she was a Best New Chef uh, winner in maybe 2000. She used to come in before Maude uh, was open, and we would talk. And she was the one who brought me to my first like Green City Market that year. And on the way, she's like, you really got to you know, study Alice, Alice Waters. And I was like, I mean, I've read The Color Purple. What else do you want me to read? I, I've read, the, you know, and I named the books of, uh, you know, Alice Walker that I had read. And she's like, no, you don't, you don't know. It's Waters and uh, here are some books. So I got, then it was Chez Panisse for me. And I used to, you know, get online and, uh, you know, look at the menus daily at Chez Panisse and just get excited about trying to find those ingredients. And the market had, you know, just started in those days. And that's when it all began for me. I just would, you know, I met Paul Kahn, and uh, I would call Paul up, and he was a wealth of information, obviously. He'd be like, okay, I buy pork from Gary Gunthorpe, so I'd call Gary Gunthorpe, and be like, I have this restaurant, like, I want to buy your pork, and Swan Creek Farm, and, like, all those places, and it was, like, sort of a birth of a, of a, a time in which a lot of Midwestern farmers were rec- recognizing the Chicago market as a possibility for them that they hadn't, you know, before understood. So these farmers were showing up. I mean, Louis John Slagle um, showed up at Lula with like brats, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And was like, hey, I got these brats. Are you interested? They're like, no, but we, we like maybe, you know, pork shoulder. We, you know, let's. And so the, I met, remember meeting him for the first time. And then all the um, you know all the farmers that go to Green City, um, and that was a it was a beautiful time of it, like sort of expansive growth of that market and of just food uh, uh, in general in Chicago and sourcing. So it was a great time to be a a, a young, growing chef. It was it was beautiful. We would just bring all sorts of stuff in, and um, and we weren't yet busy enough that it the busyness and the business got in the way of us just experimenting with whatever we wanted, you know? Lula is very much a hospitality favorite. Like people in the industry love to go to Lula. It comes up a lot on the podcast. Did you, was that around the same time that you started to build kind of this 
hospitality community alongside this artist community that kind of got Lula off the ground, where chefs coming from Trotter, like, because Logan Square is very different now than it was at the time. You were kind of like a first serious restaurant there. Were people, were you getting attention, I guess, from the community at that time? I think so. I mean, I very clearly remember the first time I met Paul Kahn. I was walking, I, I was walking out of the kitchen running food. Um, and I overheard him and his sous chef talking about cutting golden beets and how this one person was doing a bad job. That's what I overheard. <laughs> and I went up to them, are you guys, I was like, are you guys cooks? Are you like, you, do you work in a restaurant? And he was like, oh, I'm Paul Kahn. And I was like, and you know, obviously I knew who that was. And I was like, oh shit, I should have known. You know, I remember running back into the, you know, uh, into the kitchen and being like, where's table one? I gotta, I gotta, I gotta cook table one. And like table one's like walking past me, you know, the, the food for table one. I'm like, no, I gotta look at that. And it was, it was fine. He, he enjoyed it. Um, uh, but you know, Paul was there and I think it was like just being a restaurant that served food all day long was one quality, but I really think it's like taking that, the, you know, the seriousness of the sourcing and, and the care that goes into that to that kind of service, you know, to a casual service. Mm -hmm. I definitely think we were one of the first ones that were doing that in Chicago. And it seems like the techniques were constantly elevating as you've described. Like if you wanted to learn how to make something, you learned how to make it and and then kind of refined and refined and refined. Um, And then, you know, I feel like Lula has, has been hitting its stride for a very long time at this point. Like when did you feel like things had, you know, were gelling, I guess. I don't ever feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a good thing. I'm a born critic, and and one of the things that I'm working hardest on is like you know, um, you know, doing some self acceptance, both personally, like of me, who I am as a human, but also of Lula as a establishment, which is really hard for me. What were the? I mean, what are the things that you struggle with? Like, what do you wish were different? I mean, at the moment, at the moment, like like today. Yeah. Um, I mean. Every day we come in with a list of things that we want to improve. Um, Certainly it's a hard space to work in. It's, you know, the two rooms, the upstairs, downstairs. It was never built to be a restaurant. Yeah, it's like you know? a labyrinth. It's, it's odd. And, you when know. When I was down there, I was like, whoa. Yeah, like the first surprised. time I ever went down there and saw, like, the inner workings of everything, <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this is wild. Yeah. It's like one of those children's, you know, uh, I don't know, books or movies where like there's like a tree or a building and it looks kind of normal. <laughs> yeah, and then you, you enter and you could go down yeah. like, you know. There's so many different multiple paths. paths. Yeah. yeah. It really is a labyrinth, but it's a tough place to work. Um, and I'm always trying to find ways to like, you know, not just lighten the load, but to make it more efficient and um, easier to work in for the team. But in terms of like what needs to be better, it's always, I mean, right, as you know, I mean, you're in the business, like it's, yeah. It's um, it, it has a like has a gravity towards ruin. You know what I mean? It's just mm. always like food is something that you bring in, and it's the best the moment that you bring it in, right. and then it's only getting worse, and you have to rush to like make it as good as it was when it was picked. And the same is true for, um, you know, like services. Like you have to be like on top and uh, and like prepared for every service, and um, there's a tendency to you know fall behind and. The way that you correct for that is just making sure you manage your resources right. So I'm always thinking about how I'm managing resources and what I can do to manage them better for myself. And like, you know, I also have, like what I'm saying is I gotta be patient. Like the change takes takes time. time. Um, And you know, I've had 24 years and I don't think it's 
I don't think it gets, it doesn't ever just like plateau. I mean, people are always asking me like, does it get better like owning a restaurant? I'm like, it, not really. It just doesn't <laughs> plateau off and then just sort of yeah, like, the problems you know, change. It, problems change and, and, uh, and the same ones exist, you know, uh, from day one till day, whatever this is. In the beginning, seemingly, uh, you and Leah were there all the time together mm-hmm. and then things change. Kids Obviously you changed. have a family. Yeah. So how did you kind of navigate that and who's, you know, I mean, the first thing that changed was Nightwood. Okay. Um, Nightwood opened up right before we had our first child. Wow. Um, and, or excuse me, right after we had our first child. So it was, um, that was a challenge for us that, I mean, I'm going to be completely honest, that we weren't ready for um, as new parents and, um, and trying to expand in the way that we did. Um, it was hard for us to manage that. And that's when Lee and I kind of, you know, um, separated our roles. She went out, she was cooking in the kitchen, like fully pregnant with uh, my daughter Izzy, uh, until the end. And she was managing mother's day brunch on May 16th, 2011, when she had my son, like she was at, like she was on the floor Sunday brunch, fully like pregnant and, uh, had a child later that, that day. Um, That's it wild. is wild. <laughs> that is um, wild yeah. So she's tough. Um, but that said, like that, those are the things that we were really struggling to manage. Like how, like we wanted to grow, we wanted to do these, uh, this other project, but like it, it was hard for us to manage that time. And, uh, you know, whatever you learn lessons in that sense. And Nightwood was a great restaurant and so uh, great. You know, so great. And, uh, I miss it all the time, you know, and, and Jason did Me great. Too. Jason did great work and Sarah did great work and, and John did, and I, I mean, it was the the team that we had in the front of the house was terrific, and the space was great. And I mean, I cooked there the last you know year we were open. And I loved being there every day, but I couldn't manage Lula, and that it was impossible. And have two kids, it was not possible. Uh, so I, I, you know, and Marisol opened at that same time, and so I, it was all like just a little bit too much. How, I mean, I guess a couple questions. Um, does Leah miss being yes. in the day to day all yeah. the time? She does, yeah. Do you think that she will one day? Return I don't know. We can it? ask her. <laughs> Come on back. <laughs> no, but she's like pursuing episode. like music. She's and, doing a lot know. of music, um, and she's got other things that she wants to do. Yeah, um, we need to have a Leah episode. Yeah, uh, she's a, she's a brilliant musician, and uh, she should spend as much time on that as possible. Um, I mean, also, you know, uh, kids take time. For but, sure. I mean, now I got a sixteen-year-old, so she takes less time than before. Mm-hmm. But like, they take time, and uh, and also, you know, we're getting older. It's like. It's yeah. a young, you know, it's, it's harder to do the hours that, uh, I used to, I used to do, uh, and she used to do now. You know, yeah. I mean, physically. seemingly you're there quite a lot. I'm still there a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. I feel good. Uh, I feel um, I'm impressed with my father <laughs> doing it sometimes. <laughs> how does the, how does sharing like Lula and Marisol compare to Lula and Nightwood? Um, it's completely different. So my Marisol gig is a consulting gig and someone okay. else is running that. I mean, Got someone it. else is running that restaurant. Was it hard for you to just like let that be? Um, it was until the pandemic. And then, um, the pandemic really showed me like how to, to focus and, and to decide like what things I had space for. Um, so while I'm still, you know, uh, consulting there, I'm not there as much as I was pre pandemic, which okay. is okay. And they're doing a good job. Sounds like a good yeah. Good way to figure out yeah, the balance. Exactly. Pandemic did a lot for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it made people realize what worked. I know like Matt Eisler was talking, he's like, I realize I'm a bar guy. Like that's that's what my strength. And uh yeah. It put everything in a pressure cooker. It really it really did. I mean it, i 
I've you know I've said this um, a couple times, but like I you know I'm not like I can be described as an anxious person. It's like one of my, one of the key like you know uh, sources of anxiety my whole life has been oh I might lose this restaurant. Like it might not be popular. It might start to suck. I might you know whatever. Like you just that's yeah. how, what you think about your restaurant. Like how long can I be popular for? You know what I mean? Like if and. Uh, just like a band, you're like, well, is it is it run its course? And I'm constantly asking that question, um, and have the fear of losing it for whatever reason could come come that way. And then the pandemic, you actually, it it was lost. You know, yeah. I had this amazing team on, you know, March of 2020, many of whom had been there for a long time, like over 10, 15 years. And they were, we were really close and a lot of them didn't come back. A lot of them moved on to other things, which is, you know, they're doing all doing really well and we keep in touch with all of them. But I mean, they didn't, we didn't reopen for a year, you know, and uh, that was profoundly disorienting. That's, that's something I think about too, is like the fear of losing something, especially when you're a business owner. And I think when your identity is associated with that, it's like, if this fails or goes away, what am I? I, I, I mean, thought about I, that a lot early on with stock. Yeah. Like, Did you wiretap my therapy session this week? <laughs> That's that question. You have the same, same anxieties. It's like, you know, I've put spent so much time on this. If it fails, what does that say about me? And then where do I go from here? Who am I? Yeah. I ask yeah. that my, uh, all the time. Like as a, like a civilian, like if I just yeah. walked away or like lived yeah. somewhere else. It's for like a, this is all I know at this point. It is all I know. I mean, and I think you'd passionately pursue something else. I hope so. You know, and I don't want to be lost like, uh, you know. I don't know, an untethered astronaut yeah. you know, just pretty... floating off. <laughs> I think you're anchored by your relationships and your families and the community. You, you like are. Community you are. Sure. And, like, yeah. I, I recognize now that, like, if uh, if Lula were to close, I would definitely have, uh, I mean, I, there's a, a such a root system yeah. around Lula that, um, that there would be, you know, endless opportunity to, like, work on other things, um, which I might, you know, want to do at some point. You know, I don't know how long it can last. Can it last? I mean, yeah, can forever, it be, like, Zuni? Yeah. I have no idea, be, you know? Yeah. I think so. Um, You've probably funny. been a pro. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just, mine was so much more fear-based with Scofflaw. Like, we put all of our resources here. We have a lot to lose. This better work out. And so you're, I was just there so much for those first few years. And then I kind of, like... Yeah, I don't know if I was burnt out, but it was just like it was not sustainable to me at mm-hmm. that time. I think um, you open more concepts, and probably yeah, that anxiety did. gets spread over multiple. Yeah, I think things. like yeah, exactly. It was kind I of could like be your the therapist, solution. Danny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll get so, through yeah. it together. But something that you said that I did want to ask you about: you have people who are very loyal who've worked there for a very long time. What do you think the secrets are to keeping people for ten, fifteen years? Um, okay. So I think there's several, um, I think, I think it's a great place to work. Um, I want it to be, it's not perfect. Um, and, uh, we make mistakes, but I think ultimately, um, we listen and, and we grow and we make changes based on feedback. And I think that's healthy and people see that and they, and they want to, they want to work there. Um, I also think it's a, it's a community um, and people want to belong to it and they don't want to leave it, a, lo- a lot of them, you know, and I, uh, you know, there are countless um, people who have met their, you know, partners there, there are countless, you know, family stories and, you know, I know it's like, you know, restaurants aren't family, I mean, this is a really, you know, uh, interesting topic that I definitely want to uh, explore more this year and, and like do some writing about, but like, 
the concept of restaurant as family and um, and the sort of the emotional support uh, network that restaurants provide employees. I mean, Lula is definitely um, for many people a, a home base, and even if they're there temporarily, do you know what I mean by that? Like yeah. they they get something. Um, and I I have thought a lot about um, the the metaphor of like um, you know of the way that. Um, sort of like trees interact in a forest. And I, I've, I wrote about this a little bit in the cookbook. And like, you know, you don't think about um, Lula as like an individual tree with branches and the branches, you know, you're producing fruits and then you'd be like, okay, well, we've had all these great people who worked there and done amazing things. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Jason is two doors down from where we are right now at Giant and he's brilliant and he was our first sous chef, you know what I mean, at Lula. Um, so that's not exactly how I think about it. I think more about it as like, you know, that's their, they're their own tree and they're somewhere else. And, but we're like connected at the roots, you know, and sharing the same resources. What so was I feel he like when you first hired him? Oh, I mean, Jason. Yeah. I mean, he's a different guy back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I'm saying is just like people feel that when they are, when they're there and they're employed, even if it's a short time, they feel like there, there is a sort of community resource and a connectivity that, um, that will, ben- that will benefit them. And uh, I think that people stay when they're really getting something from that and mm-hmm. it, it works in their lives. So, I mean, Natalie Sternberg, who uh, is one of our managers, has been there since the first day. Wow. Ken- Kendall Cost has been there for over 15 years. Laura Leon, over 15 years. So That's cool. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, everybody wants stability. That's Yeah, I mean, I think it's emotional. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, people could go somewhere else and make more money you know what i mean it's not mm-hmm. it's not just i mean we want to provide a, a healthy income um but it's it's there's something else about the community that that keeps people and then on the topic of giving back to community you start pilot light how does that come about pilot light came about um when there was a like sort of call to arms by michelle obama and the uh, obama administration for chefs to go back to schools that was the, the actually the name of the program chefs go to schools or chefs get back to schools or something like that and um the we sort of looked at that request like and asked ourselves like uh, a group of chefs like what can well, how could we go to how could we be involved in the school system and paul and matthias paul Kahn and matthias Murgis, um they they held a meeting at Publican and it was sort of like, just come if you're interested in knowing how to give back to your you know school community and like a hundred chefs showed up it was mm. amazing, <laughs> and uh, we talked about all these great ideas and uh, and then we was decided to meet the following week and then we were like fifty and then there were twenty five and then it was like four or five of us at the end um, and what happened was that Matthias had some uh, some kids in a public school and he was already you know Matthias is the hardest working man in the business and he was already showing up to the school just on his own like doing cooking demos and whatever he could because he cares in that way and so we met with the principal and they let us do a school takeover so we took over every class you know every, like every grade and uh, we worked with the teachers on whatever they were teaching that day, and we tried to develop food demos that matched with whatever what was happening in that class. So, you know, obviously in a kindergarten class is, was very different than in sixth grade. Um, so the chefs had to try to figure out what could work in that classroom on that given day. Um, I, I was once tasked with doing a, uh, a food demo on magnets. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what, what do you do? Um, so I, I brought in induction, induction burners yeah, and yeah. taught them yeah. how an induction burner works. 
cool. which was fun because like you know they got to like a race to see how you know different metals interacted and whatever it was it was a it was a great day and then we took over the lunchroom that's how pilot started and what is important about that origin story is the chefs going to the teachers and saying like how could we use food to help you teach the subject that you're trying to teach and that's what pilot light does now we work with teachers to um, create curriculum that will work in their school systems and now we're across the country it's not just in chicago so teachers apply to be part of a fellowship where they're trained they get professional uh, development credits uh, and money they get paid yeah so that mm -hmm. um and they uh, bring that curriculum work back to their classrooms wherever they are that's very cool so it was it was it first lady michelle obama at the time and was this a national effort or was this it was a, Chicago a national thing? effort and okay. there was an there was an invitation that went out for chefs to get involved in their school systems nationally did it take off elsewhere I actually or don't know of any other <laughs> programs that came out of that other than ours. I'm sure there are many, um, but I always, uh, you know, I, I know that is a key part of our origin story. Cool. And it's still going. Yeah, very much so. Cool. Okay. So Lula has been around for a very long time, very successful by all of our measures that we use. Um, what inspires you to do a cookbook like at what point are you like okay now is the time yeah it seems like a natural fit as a writer was it always on your radar it's on my radar yeah um i've always wanted to do more writing there have been a few opportunities that i've had uh over the years i wrote a little piece for um lucky peach um it was a while ago um about economics in the restaurant industry and like the connection of the economic model and culture and rest kitchen culture specifically um, that really opened up my like I mean open up some doors for me but also open up my mind to like the possibility that I could do this and uh, but I never was given enough space um, to like really say anything and Fiden came to me Fiden is the publisher of the cookbook um, because another chef had eaten at Lula and thought it would be a good a good fit and I uh, just never had the time I mean I tried to write a proposal and it, it just took too much I, I it's I'm so busy I'm working so much like when am I gonna find time to do this um, so I eventually did get a proposal together and then the pandemic happened so mm -hmm. I got the proposal together like I think in February 2020 oh, um, and then um, and I was feeling good like February 2020, I'm like, I had a great team, like Lula was yeah. humming. Um, I felt really, really solid about where we were headed. And, um, and that's when I wrote the proposal. I'm like, okay, I got time to do this. Um, and, uh, and then the pandemic happened. And I, I, during the pandemic is when I wrote the book. But again, I mean, I, I just didn't have a lot of time. I was like, you know, working and then going down in the basement and like, typing stuff up and I wrote the I wrote the book myself and that was like the key important you know goal for me is not to have like a ghost, ghost writer, writer yeah, right, or someone right. helping me do it you can always kind of sense that like the Agassiz autobiography <laughs> 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 well yeah I had no idea because like if you I'm sure in certain deals you pay enough money and the ghostwriter name is not listed mm -hmm. yeah and you can so, pay for that yeah so yeah. that's, I think, what happened with the Agassi book. <laughs> that certainly what happened. It's still a fun read. <laughs> I recommend it for any yeah, time. It's it is a great, it is. Yeah, it's very entertaining. I didn't know that, and Tim, uh, Tim was the I one spoiled that was hired. On the side note, so. who are your favorite player, players, players of all, of all time. time? I mean, I love Federer. Federer's my guy. Yeah, uh, Fed. I mean, Nadal now. I don't know. I mean, I'm excited to watch like Fritz and, and Tiafo do some stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Fritz is looking very good right now. 
Alcaraz as is a machine. I saw him at the Open last Alcaraz. year, and I'm like, this guy's you got to watch him. I wish Curios was healthy enough to play because right, right. it's just so fun to watch. What about yeah. of all time, like oh. of the last you know, hundred years? In a row. I love oh, yeah, Borg. Agassi. Agassi Pete Sampras. Me. Gotta love Pete. Yeah. American hero. What about the seventies? Um, Mats Vlander. Yeah, right, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know any. Right, those are guys I saw play on like, the you? senior so, tour. So my like a key moment for me is yeah. uh, uh, the U.S. Open semifinal. Um, I can't remember who Connors was playing. I actually was quarter. It was a quarterfinal at U.S. Open when Connors had his comeback in '91, and my dad was a massive Connors guy, and uh, you know my dad. Um, it was a big guy. I know, you know, run on a podcast, you can't see me, but I am not a large person. <laughs> uh, my dad was like, you know, 6'2 and like 280 and a yeah, former cool. athlete. And he played all sports. Uh, and he would take me out on the tennis court. And like, I, it was, you know, the era of Bjorn Borg and like topspin was like kind of faddish, yeah. if you, you want to yeah. say that. So like, I started hitting with this topspin and I got my head ripped off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> my dad was like, you know, don't give me any of that, like, sissy bullshit. You got to punch the ball, punch oh it. God. And he was like, took the racket and he was like punching the racket like this. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he was really unhappy with my interest in, in spinning. In Borg. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, so then when Connors made a comeback... Uh, and I don't know if you've ever watched this um, game. Uh, it's a quarterfinal match in, in uh, U.S. Open. It was, a, it was a night game, and we were watching, and he was an old man at that point when he you know, was coming back, uh, and he had an amazing couple of points to win that, game, to win that match, and his interactions with the, the crowd in New York were just unbelievable and it was like one of the best moments to be with my dad watching that um of my life and uh i always like i if you were to bring it up on youtube right now it could definitely produce a tear you know what i mean wow. like yeah. uh, we gotta watch it yeah we'll throw it uh, i'll find I'll, I'll we'll find it after this <laughs> all right anyway sounds, so connors yeah. would be the you know the 70s hero here for you know tough yeah you know masculine dudes of the <laughs> former era that yeah, would be was, my dad yeah. i loved watching uh just McEnroe and connor's go at it they hated each other oh yeah McEnroe would make fun of him because i guess connor's mom taught him how to play <laughs> she must have been the one behind the top spin there, yeah and uh <laughs> have you watched uh djokovic do his impressions yeah no. yeah the serve impressions no the impressions of famous players I've seen him like imitate people's serves. Yeah, the seen, serves. Like, yeah, yeah, oh, the yeah. serves. That's pretty. I haven't fun. seen him do his impressions. All right. though. this is taking a tangent. Has <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do a mean Macro impression. I do it right-handed though. Oh, oh yeah, I'll show yeah, you yeah, sometime. Yeah, you We're can. expecting you to hear. Yeah, you got to yeah. work on the left. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. So I, I got like some behind the scenes um, 
view views of the cookbook because Carolina Rodriguez was living with me last summer. She's the photographer yeah, for the course. book, and she lives in LA. And she would come to Chicago to shoot for you know weeks at a time, and she'd stay at us, stay with us. And um, she definitely felt the pressure. I think because this was a, an anticipated book, everybody loves Lula. Like it's finally coming out, and um, this is her first cookbook. How did that? Um, how is that relationship? Like, how, how closely do you work with people? I know, like, as, as someone who reads cookbooks and pulls recipes from them, pictures are extremely important. That can that could be the make or break on whether or not you choose that dish for your cookbook club meal. Cookbook <laughs> so, club. Cookbook club. Uh, so how, how does that, like, how does the whole team come together um, outside of the writing? Yeah, I mean, my team was uh, Sarah Rinkovich, who was a former chef of mine, who was a chef at Marisol, uh, who's now a private chef, uh, helped me do the food um, and Carolina obviously did the photography. What we did first was we hired a photo studio and some people to help us, and we uh, we put together an initial shoot. And you know, to be honest, like it didn't feel right. I called Carolina up, and she's like, "Does this feel wrong?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So we scrapped the whole like notion of being at a studio, and we just did it in my house. And it was it was pretty clear to me that like I didn't want to have some of the the sort of trappings of cookbook photography, which I'll ask you both. What are the trappings of like, you know, contemporary cookbook photography? When things look too clean and then you make it and you're like, that's not what it looks like. I feel like the separation of ingredients, they try to make each ingredient um, stand alone. So you yeah, can kind of, it looks like say. it looks too deconstructed. It's the dish standing alone on a color. And then, yeah. And then you're like, why doesn't mine look like that? And then Especially for cookbook club, high pressure. You want it to look good because people are taking pictures. Yeah, that's hard for me. I mean, I hope our, I don't know if our cookbook is going to be good for the cookbook club. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do it. No, I mean, you're going to be invited, and then you'll get to taste all of the dishes. Yeah, yeah. Find out how the bad the recipes are. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll purposely. But just for me, add it's like it's other things. It's like hands in the photography. You know, like oh, a, yeah. a knife cutting through, or like uh, a dish where like the fork has stabbed a piece of meat and then it's off to the side mm. with like a sprinkle of sea salt on mm-hmm, it. And yeah. you're like, well, how did that happen? And yeah. It looks would, too staged. It's very staged. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I wanted to get away from. Um, so, uh, we, we settled on a, like, um, just, a, these sort of like bright and poppy colors as backdrops rather than the, the typical, like, I don't know the the standard th- you know issue stuff is like kind of like fake marble or mm. like these like rustic wood you know wood yeah. tables and we just we just went a different direction, and because we weren't taking the photos in Lula, it's divorced from the space. And like part of me was like you know at first I was like oh I this doesn't maybe this isn't going to be right because like we're not in the space that we're the book is about Lula, but what I realized is that like you can't I can't recreate what it feels like to be in that space in a book. I mean, I wrote a long introduction about my story and I'm really proud of that introduction. Um, but to be, to explain what it's like to be in that space, like you just have to be there Yeah. and mm-hmm. it's, and I, and you be there and be in being there, you feel a lot of history and you feel the stories of the people that have passed through there and, uh, that have come together and it's sort of ineffable. It's like, it's just this thing that is exists. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't want to try to recreate that in some sort of like a manufactured way at a studio or in even, even in the photograph. So I just made the food. And in terms of what food is in the cookbook, it was also like, we don't like, we just make food every, like the menu is doesn't repeat. 
we have this cafe menu that's always the same. So like pasta yaya is in the cookbook. And, um, but the majority of the food that we do, we do a dish for a few weeks and then it goes away and it never is seen again. I mean, something similar might be seen the following year um, with similar ingredients, but the actual dish or the preparation of what we did specifically is never repeated. So there are thousands of dishes that we've done. And like, so to me, what I was trying to say with the book was like, this is what we did in this day and time we'll do something different tomorrow. And recipes aren't about like replicating something in a perfect way. They're just sort of about experience, experience of cooking or of buying the ingredients or coming together and trying something out and being at a table together. So all the recipes are stamped with the day, the month and the year that they were created um, with that understanding of like this was then and like, we don't make that again. You're not going to buy our cookbook. And if you really like this dish that's in there, you know, come and have it. Yeah, like right. that's not a possibility. Um, and um, that's, it, it's a different way of looking at, you know, at, at a, at a cookbook. And I mean, hopefully people won't be turned off by that. You know, I could see someone will be like, well, I see it in the book. Like where, where, where can, when can I eat that? And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's not, then they miss the whole point. It, yeah, yeah. Read exactly. the intro. Yeah. Read the intro. <laughs> Yeah, that's something I try to work on cooking is like I, when you start out cooking from books, you want to follow every everything to the word. And then you do have to pivot and you do have to relax and be like, all right, I, maybe this ingredient isn't isn't yeah. available. You have, you have to kind of work are, with the seasonality of things. We had we recently did one where the salt levels were just like totally off and we all like felt that like it called for X amount of salt and then we tasted all these dishes and the salt levels were like so high. You have to adjust. Like you don't know what salt they're using. Like right. sometimes it's not specified. You could have a heavy hand with your salt. Maybe they're leveling off the, you know. I mean, I say this very clearly in the book, like recipes for me should not make the same thing every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one, the work of being a chef is to be there every day and to address the sort of like the, the dynamic qualities that are happening in food in the moment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the pan isn't going to be the same heat. Like the leeks are going to be twice as big today because it's a week later and they mm -hmm. had time to grow. Whatever is happening, sure. you have to adjust to it. And yeah, so the notion point. that a recipe is like there to produce an outcome is like not what the, this book is about. The mm -hmm. recipe is there to tell a story. And like it's also, you know, the, many of the headers in front of the recipes literally have nothing to do with the recipe that follows. <laughs> um, so there are times when it's just like, I think about uh, a story or an image or a, an, uh, an episode that I want to tell that is connected to the food, but isn't really going to tell you how to cook it or, you know, or why I, we created that dish. You know, it's just about the time and the place. For a uh, recipe selection, did, was it, up to you or did were, oh no um, it's up to me yeah they weren't yeah. like oh we need more meat dishes or there was just you, yeah, it was you're up to, up me. to you to curate yeah and like you know in retrospect you know I'm, i maybe would have chosen different ones i don't know like when you're in the making a cookbook like you're you gotta go <laughs> you yeah. know like there's a, it's a it's lot, like, of a lot of work factors like it's a lot of factors that look pretty or mm -hmm. they don't look pretty and or... it's seasonal for us like when can i get what you or, know yeah um with the photography schedule that we have yeah were there things you couldn't get yes yeah there were there were definitely things i couldn't get and I, you know, I have, um, I do have an idea to do a much more um, focused brunch book as a second book what, that would be bigger. Uh, you know, uh, this book has 90 recipes, um, but I, there are, we have a lot of brunch uh, material that I'd like to work on. So that's something that I might do as a second book. Nice. 
Cool. Well, uh, if there are no other major topics to get into, uh, should we move on to the gratuity round? Let's hit him with the yeah, gratuity let's, round. Let's do it. All right, Jason. All right. I mean, I listen regularly, so I, I'm kind oh, of good. excited. <laughs> so you're ready. Nice. You're I actually ready. listened this morning to... Uh, Catherine Anne's. Oh, oh cool. nice. Well, nice. we got all new questions for you. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm like preparing for this. No, no, no. So now I'm going to get curveballs. <laughs> What's your, we, we, did, we are going to be changing the question soon, but not for yeah, today. A lot of top spin coming your way. Hey, Danny. Yes, Tim. Question of the Bronca varieties. Is that all right? It's totally cool with me. They are one of our sponsors after all. Terrific. Okay, the sponsor is Bronca International. That is the company. Yes. Fernet. So what's Fernet then? Fernet is the style of Amaro that they originated in 1845. Okay. So that style, Fernet, is basically a mentholated, punchier, so it's like higher proof and it's a mintier version of Amaro. Okay. I get that. It's a minty punch. Yep, and it has since spawned many imitators. Got it. And those also go by the name Fernet, but they're not Fernet. Bronca. Right. Bronca is the name of the distillery, Fertelli Bronca. So it's Fernet Bronca. I got it. That's all. Okay. Can we get back to the show now? Yes, sir. So what is your death row meal? My death row meal. Um, I would have to choose um, pasta. Do I get and do I get to choose if it's a death row death row meal? I will choose uh, uh, Genovese, which is a Neapolitan pasta dish. Um, are you familiar with this dish? No. Okay, it's an amazing recipe. Um, it's traditional to Naples, even though it's called Genovese, which is you know means of Genova. Um, so, uh, basically it's beef shank. When we did it at Lula recently, we used lamb. Um, but you sear beef shank in a heavy pot and then you cover it with onions. I mean, like covered in onions. Sounds so, great you so know, far. uh, you know, a couple pounds of beef shank might, you might have like 48 onions. I mean, it's like oh, just damn. a pile of onions. Uh, and you cover it and the the water and you cook it for hours and the water from the onions becomes the sauce. Um, and then you just, it's usually served with like ziti or, pack, mm. you know, like a, a hearty um, extruded noodle. Um, so it's, it's meaty, but it's mostly just aromatic. And what I love about it is that it takes like three ingredients and it's transformative. Mm. It just is a, it's an act of beauty. And mm. I just think it's an amazing dish. So Any cheese as garnish on this thing? Uh, typically no, but oh, don't I mean, you dare you Danny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. All right. What is your favorite hidden gem restaurant? So I don't have an answer for this. I thought about it all day. Okay. Um, <laughs> literally since this morning at like, I, you know, I go to the gym early and listen to podcasts and I've yeah. listened to yours many times. Um, and I, I don't have an answer. I do want to say that, and I, if you're going to ask me what my favorite restaurant is in the city too, um, I do have a, a, a shout out to Parachute and I know Parachute's, you know, it's a fine dining restaurant. And like, usually when you ask questions about like favorites or hidden gems, you're asking for something that's like, um, you know, possibly more casual, but, um, I've always thought that uh, Johnny and Beverly are, are really great at what they do. Yeah. But I don't know if you've been to Parachute since they went to a more traditional um, approach. It's like it was, it's really brilliant. 
Hmm. And uh, the execution is like other level. When did the switchover happen? I mean, I think I, I think it means post pandemic. Okay, mm-hmm. I've been post pandemic. I'm curious. It's so more it's more like... recent, and okay. um, I think it's brilliant. And I, I just like I don't. I mean, they get credit. Obviously, they're they're well known people. Um, but I think it should be recognized as one of the best restaurants in the country. All right. I think great. that's around the same time they started using stock uniforms. Was, uh, <laughs> the was, uh, there you go. <laughs> no, we've been, we've been talking to Johnny and Beverly. We need to get them on. Yeah, we've tried. Yeah. They're tough. Oh, they're they, busy at the restaurant. They are, and they have a large family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Beverly's they, like, yeah, email Johnny. I was like, yeah. Was and Johnny says, email Beverly. They're passing us off. Johnny worked at Lula the you know year before opening Parachute. Oh, I didn't know oh, that. Yeah. Didn't know that as a, you know, he was cooking, just like, you know, working there in the mornings and then going and like laying tile, whatever he did. I just love that restaurant. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Uh, all right. Favorite fast food? Okay, so this is a, a running joke. I don't really eat any fast food. We figured that out. Uh, I, I assumed. I was, I, I was asked this question at an event once, and the one thing that I, like, one, it's not like I'm against it, and I certainly had plenty of, I've, pl- I've certainly had plenty of McDonald's meals in my life, and one of the things that I would get is a filet of fish. Yeah, and I like the fillet of fish. I know that is not everybody feels that way, and that's oh, a strange my, my choice. My mom and brother love it. Yeah, um, no, it's got a cult following. It's got. It's I'm, like I'm the part McRib. Of, I'm part of the yeah. cult following. I eat a lot of fillet of fishes. You do. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you're with me. I mean, obviously the fries are second to none. Yeah. Um, but at this event, I was like, I like the fish sandwich from McDonald's, <laughs> and I got roasted. <laughs> roasted. <laughs> Boot out of the building. <laughs> all right we will accept that that's a good that's a solid answer yeah all right what is your favorite cocktail uh, i mean i also don't drink very much that's that was my other you know like trepidation coming to this podcast no, so it right, must yeah. have to be very special it's it's special i like i mean i like bitter things i i like things that have amaro in them um and gin so i mean you can see where i'd be i'd yeah. be headed um but and you know like i heard you s- say to Catherine Ann today, like, if you gave me, like, you're going to go and, you know, create a cocktail after, you know, being yep. given some, some options. Um, but I'm really, I'm a big fan of like, um, light, uh, like, you know, not heavily, um, boozy cocktails and things that are very bitter. Okay. So, you know, even, even my kids are like, my kids are huge fans of Chinoto, this like yeah, the, that's bitter the soda, bitter soda yeah. and I'm like a Campari fan, but I mean, I, that's not very serious. I get that. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, this is all great information. Okay. I think that's enough info. You know, you but for me, yeah. I, you got, you got to go with like, all, I mean, all the local people that, you know, we support, you know, the yeah, Appalachians and, the, and, the, yeah. and, yeah. and Leatherby, like Lula alum and stuff like that. All right, that. cool. I'll do that. All right. Um, all-time favorite band. All-time f- favorite band? Yeah, I understand you had <laughs> a uh, prestigious wedding Holy. guest uh, perform. Yeah, I did, I did tell him that you had yeah, a very Andrew special... Andrew Bird played at our wedding. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. That's great, right? Yeah. All-time favorite band. Um, okay, early E Street band. Wow. Yeah. All right, great. Solid answer. Early E Street Band, Asbury Park, like yeah. Born and Run E Street Band. We were, what's the venue on the by the boardwalk? Uh, is it Painted Pony, the Stone Pony? Mm-hmm. What's the name I of it? I don't remember, uh, but it's Pony is the second word. Yeah, we stayed, <laughs> uh, we were at a wedding there last year and stayed right next to it, and there was like a lot of, you know, a lot of people still go there for like tours and stuff because that's mm-hmm. where it all started, I guess. Cool. 
fan of the boss. I am a fan of, of a specific a very boss specific era, era of yeah, the very boss. specific and I'm you know it's like I'm a fan of like ten, you know five Billy Joel songs big fan <laughs> not a fan yeah. of any of the rest of where it. do you stand on the midwestern boss Bob Seeger I, I don't stand on Bob Seeger <laughs> wow this is an Italian thing though okay. you know what I mean All like right. unless Bob Seeger is secretly Italian and I don't know about it but um Unlikely. It's an East Coast. Yeah, you know, true, like, true. It's an East Coast it's thing. A, it's a dad thing for me. Okay. Uh, what unexpected trivia, trivia category would you dominate? Um, okay, there's a couple that I thought about. Um, I know, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter. I know way too much about fashion houses, designers, what's happening, and that kind of stuff. Um, but I also know way too much about The Sopranos. Oh wow! Okay. Um, I, you great, know, I've yeah. watched many times. Watched many. How many times? I think like four. I'm a like a a bit. I don't watch TV at my house, um, but I do uh, run uh, in a, on a treadmill and just watch repeatedly. You know, shows over and over and over over the years. Yeah. So I've seen that a couple times. And then in the pandemic, uh, I uh, listened to a Sopranos podcast where they went through oh, every single mm, episode in You've detail. Like three times? No, I've only watched Sopranos once. Um, oh, Mad but Men. Because of, yeah, plus. we love Mad Men, oh, which yeah, is also go. Matthew Weiner. Mm -hmm. um, I watched Mad Men, and then I'm, I liked that so much that I went back and watched Sopranos, and I love that, too. I think I'm like two or three times through Sopranos. Yeah. That'd yeah. be strong. I could, uh, I, could, I could do... We could do well together. Let's yeah, join let's up on... I'm trivia sure. night. <laughs> We're due for a rewatch uh, with with this companion podcast. There's a companion book for Mad Men that I recommend called yeah. Carousel. That was really like yeah. an essay for each episode, yeah. and it's kind of fun to read along as yeah. you go. The Talking Sopranos podcast is okay. one that they did during the pandemic, which was very solid. All right, I'll check it out. Nice. Um, all right. To what do you attribute your success? I show up a lot. You, know <laughs> you are I mean? always there. I'm always there. <laughs> um, so showing up, being present, uh, yeah. is uh, is definitely like you know what for me that I can do for my team. Um, but I also, I mean, I contribute it to my team. Them, I mean, they are a great team, and we've talked about how many people I've had that you know have stayed for a long time, and it just builds upon itself. So I mean, I think they're the real secret of the Lula success. Nice. Uh, what is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you? That might annoy me. I'm with the, the QR code. I'm done with the QR time code. Time to go. It's time um, to retire. It's a relic of an old era. I, I, do, I do struggle with that. Um, I don't mind so much like losing the tactile menu, although I prefer the tactile menu. What I don't like is the confusion about whether or not you're supposed to order off the QR code mm -hmm. or from a human. And like, I also don't think it's great to wait for the guest to like make that sort of like choice because the, you know, the disengagement is happening. That said... This has been a hard couple of years, and I don't really um, begrudge anybody's practices. I do, you know, I do begrudge things. Like I was in uh, um, in Maine recently. From my mom lives in Maine now, um, and on our way out, like we were a big group of people. My family, you know, all think they're three nuclear families together, and we went to like a, a brew pub, and it was a huge space but they had these aisles and it was pretty busy but they had plenty of tables and my the party was 12 people so they had you know you would need three tables of four to seat that party and they were like unwilling to change their server mm. sections to accommodate the nice, the group yeah. of us and they they sat us at three different tables uh -huh. um i um 
I, that that kind of thing where you're putting like the operational like just like this is how we do it mm-hmm. ahead of any yeah. kind of like sensibility of of like need is uh, something that bothers me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that one. That's a that's a fresh one. That no mean an early memory I have is my dad and I were at Dodger Stadium and uh, we go to the TCBY to like frozen yogurt. I know what TCBY yeah, is yeah, yeah. from the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. They had we, you we know, I'm just saying for the listeners. They had to change that name. Was it me and you talking about that? No idea. But anywho, yeah, <laughs> my dad is, uh, you know, he's going to get a frozen yogurt and and he's like, hey, could you just do like, you know, half vanilla and then half chocolate. But I, d- I don't want to have a swirl. Like, I just want it. Yeah, like, just turn the machine off halfway. Exactly. A hundred, like, the most Could easy. Could not ba- do this. They, ref- like, it, like, blew their minds, and they refused to to fulfill this request. And they're like, we could do swirl, or you could do vanilla or chocolate. He's like, yeah, just some vanilla and some chocolate. And it was like, they no, would they not. They do it. They would not Couldn't wrap their head around it. And it was just, like, a similar thing where, like, it's such an easy solution to make someone happy. But there's like no, yeah. Whether I mean, they had I, trouble ringing that up yeah. or whatever the situation. I mean, I'm is. well known for saying yes to way, way too many. <laughs> yeah, I want a burrito with one over hard egg <laughs> yeah. and one scrambled egg, and the scrambled egg needs to have egg whites. But could you just put yeah? You know, because we're sharing it, and I don't like you know egg whites. And my yeah, you know, my so my boyfriend good. does. So like we want this egg on this half of the burrito, and then I'm like, all right, let's figure it out. Thanks Come for on, accommodating guys. my mom's order. All right, there you go. <laughs> uh, real quick, uh, TCBY, which stands for This Can't Be Yogurt, changed its name to the country's best yogurt after a lawsuit from a competitor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now we know. <laughs> Thank you. All right. And here's Drop our last knowledge on us over here. Here's our last question. <laughs> What's the best thing about Chicago's dining scene? Oh, the, I mean, I have to say the communities. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, what happens when, you know, last week I did an event with Mitokaya, like, you know, Chef Diana calls me up and it's like, hey, I'm trying to work on this project to get the soup kitchen thing going. And then all of a sudden I'm at an event with like, six or seven uh chefs and i like three of them were people that i didn't know and she introduced me to new people i mean that right there was uh a great moment of the summer for me and it happens all the time and i don't know if this happens in other cities or not i've been told it doesn't you know that it's way more competitive and Mm. people don't want to share information Hmm. and here, yeah, I mean, like it's not like that. I mean, I've got, you know, we're all going through a lot of, you know, uh, difficult questions about the financial model of, you know, in our businesses now, you know, of course. And, you know, there's potential legislation, uh, you know, uh, coming through that might, you know, dramatically impact um, how people um, structure their businesses. I can't tell you how many people have called me in the last couple of weeks and asked me, like, how do we do it? And, like, can you open up and you know, look at our books or look at and share books. I mean, financial information. Yeah. You know what I mean? With each other. And like, we're not like, you know, signing NDAs and like all worried about like, it's just like, how can we make this work? Like what, what choices have you made um, that have worked for you? And um, it it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, And I think it's a real powerful, uh, it's it's real powerful here in the city. And I'm not from here and people like welcomed me, you know, like just took me in, you know. Same. Well, I'm, here. I'm from here. So. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, Jason. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us today. It. Yeah, 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 thanks, thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you.
That concludes our conversation with Jason Hamill of Lula Cafe. Thanks for listening. And remember to check us out on Instagram at JoinersPod for exclusive content. And also, if you're so inclined, please like, subscribe, and drop a review for the Joiners podcast. And, ten, and tell 10 of your closest friends. Yeah. And tell 10 close friends and three <laughs> enemies. <laughs> this episode was produced, this episode was produced <laughs> by Matt Haddock, music by Captain Cuts, and reels by the one and only Joe Guzzo III. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.